This is unstructured. Hey everybody, today I'm super excited. I have Eugene Casey. Now Eugene Casey is a former FBI special agent in charge of, well, it appears to be everywhere. He has traveled all around the world and all kinds of amazing assignments. And I feel like we're going to barely be able to scratch the surface. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Eric. Happy December. <laughs> Happy December. Yeah. This year is just blowing by. Getting into current time, I understand you're advising on a television show coming up? I am. I'm a, I'm the technical advisor on a upcoming ABC show called Whiskey Cavalier, which should debut uh, sometime maybe in February with a Super Bowl tie-in, it's looking like. Oh, nice. Nice. How, did a 13-episode um, yeah. run? They're filming 12 for the first season, so they're, they're right now shooting episode 8 in Prague. In Prague, okay. And, uh, it's, from what I hear, it's going very well. Oh, excellent, excellent. And it is, um, yeah. I, I noticed you put down an FBI, CIA show. Does it go into the, I guess, differences between the agencies and, and who's in charge of what and things like that? A little bit. I mean, it's uh, the show was written and it's produced, and the showrunner is a good friend of mine, David Hemmingson. And he... Uh, He's been in Hollywood a long time. He did the Anthony Bourdain TV show Kitchen Confidential a long time ago, which he kind of made Bradley Cooper a star hmm. But um, with that TV show. But he, he came to visit me actually when I was working in Paris. And he was sort of, in his words, inspired by you know what I was doing in Paris and then wrote this pilot. Um, based on what he thinks I was really doing in Paris. So it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the most realistic uh, of TV shows, and it's not meant to be. It's more, uh, he would say it's escapist entertainment. It's kind of uh, Mission Impossible meets Cheers, but it's very entertaining. He's a great writer. It's, there's comedy in it. There's, there's action. There's drama. And uh, he's got two great stars, one who plays a, an FBI agent based in Paris, you know, loosely based on me, and that's that guy's played by Scott Foley, so he's the FBI agent in the show. And Scott, I don't know if you know Scott, but he did uh, he did a bunch of shows. He did Felicity, Scandal. He was in True Blood. Mm. Um, great actor. And uh, the co-star who plays the CIA agent is Lauren Cohan, who's quite famous as the she plays Maggie in The Walking Dead. And um, so it's, it's going to be a great show. The, the trailer is up. You can find the trailer for Whiskey Cavalier on YouTube. And uh, I'm very excited to, that David brought me in to be the technical advisor on the show. So my job really is to, I make the show slightly more realistic. <laughs> you know, I, I give uh, the correct FBI and agency titles to the characters and things like that. But if you're looking for pure realism, this is not the show for how FBI work overseas really works, but it, it's it's very entertaining. Okay, is it somewhat like the military though, where it can't be completely there? Now, I, I was in the army one time, and one thing I note noticed, or it's at least rumored, is anytime you see a military uniform, a dress uniform on a television mm -hmm. show, the awards are always yeah. the ribbons are always put in the wrong order, and that's yeah. deliberate it, because they can't actually represent it's um called stealing um valor or stolen valor in a sense yes 
Yeah, there's some things like that, like the the media is not allowed to portray what our actual credentials look like. So, you know, the stereotypical FBI agent, when they identify themselves, they hold out these this little thing. It's not a badge. It's, it's what our it's our credentials. Mm. And you see that depicted in some movies and TV shows. And they're not allowed to use the real one because uh, like like I guess the same reason they're not allowed to show real U.S. currency in movies, which you know, I guess they're worried about some kind of uh, counterfeiting or something. Yeah. That, and I definitely want to cover that because you did a lot of counterfeiting work. Um, how does it feel, though, to, to see somebody who's kind of playing you? Is that a, a weird? <laughs> it's very weird. I mean, he's kind of inspired by my situation in Paris at the time, but he's not really playing me. I mean, the, the character is inspired by me, so it's not really a, meant to be a true depiction of me, but the show is great. I mean, uh, just to see, uh, you know, it, it does show some of the realistic... Uh, headbutting that does happen between the CIA and the FBI overseas and that's uh, that that's in the show and and you know my job was to tweak some of those things you know we don't wear uniforms so I didn't have to advise about uniforms but mm-hmm. things like the titles getting the correct titles right was important to me um, because in the initial draft it was you know the head of the FBI office in Paris was uh, referred to as the assistant director and I'm like no 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 it's not that's not the assistant director it's what we call the legal attache is the diplomatic title mm. for the fbi boss in an embassy overseas so the, the legal attache everyone in the diplomatic world calls the legat for short okay and that's 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 how we're known overseas the the legat office but if you say the legat and then in a u.s embassy overseas Everybody knows you're talking about the FBI. Okay, and is that like um, I've heard before from uh, another agent that advises on television things like um, it's not the SAC, it's the SAC. The SAC is actually the special agent in charge of an FBI field office in the United States, which I've never been. I've never risen that high. So I've been a a supervisory special agent Mm -hmm. where I supervised a squad of agents but I've never been a special agent in charge. And a special agent in charge, like I said, runs a whole field office. Okay. And, and if it's a really, really big field office like New York or L.A., it's actually assistant director in charge. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, now... Like, compared to, you know, I was stationed in Salt Lake City, which only had 90 agents at the time, so that had a special agent in charge. But New York City, which has, you know, roughly over 1,000 agents, there's an assistant director in charge. Wow, actually, 90 agents sounds like a lot. Is it because the Salt Lake office covers um, a large geographical area? Yes, we had the the second largest geographical area in the Bureau uh, after the Anchorage office, which covered all of Alaska. But in Salt Lake, we covered all of Utah, Idaho, and Montana, which is a lot of, a lot of square miles. Wow. Now, when you're working out of an office like that, the agents aren't going to work in Salt Lake City and then going all over the place. Or do they just report to that no. office, but they have like little field offices all over the place? How does that work? Yes. Yes. Salt Lake City was sort of our, the headquarters of that division, of the Salt Lake City division. That was the headquarters office. And then we had small, smaller offices throughout Utah, Idaho, and, and Montana called resident agencies. And those offices usually had about a half a dozen agents. So... They're like our satellite offices. Okay. 
No. And I forget how many how many of those we had in Salt Lake. I'd say at least ten. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Now, were these yeah. um, resident offices? Did they work in conjunction with like local law enforcement in the uh, different areas? Oh yeah, absolutely. Just just like we did in in the headquarters office in Salt Lake, we worked uh, closely with our partners in local law enforcement. Can you help with some of that reputation? Is that accurate that um, local police resent FBI or that there's friction between them, or is that kind of a trope? You know, there there used to be. I think definitely in, say, my father's generation. My father was an NYPD officer. And in those days, you know, in the 50s and 60s, the FBI had the, a real reputation of, you know, coming in and saying, all right, boys, we're taking over now. Thanks a lot. Get out of here. And, and they would take over a case and make it a federal case. But that's those days are long gone. Now the FBI is successful because we work so closely with our local partners in, in law enforcement. And as you know, in the United States, there are literally thousands of local police offices, um, sheriff's offices. Uh, in, in New York City alone, you have, the, you have the NYPD, you have the New York State Police, you have the FBI, you have the DEA. Every, everybody is there, and you have to coordinate. Otherwise, you know, you're just duplicating effort or or running into each other on the street on an investigation, which is not a good thing. Now, do you do you ever partner up with the other agencies, like uh, on a case, like maybe you'd work directly with an ATF agent or a marshal or something? Oh, sure, absolutely. I, I worked for a couple of years on, in Salt Lake on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which was comprised, you know, not just of FBI agents, but we had we had IRS agents, we had ATF, we had Customs, we had. Salt Lake City PD, we had uh, County Sheriff's Office, we had, you know, uh, Utah State Police all working together. So on any given investigation, I could be working with any one or more of those individuals. Uh, for instance, I did a, uh, a Colombian drug money laundering case in Utah, and my main partner for the first couple of years of that case was a Salt Lake City police detective in their financial crimes unit. Oh, awesome. What What happened with that can you talk about that case a little yeah i just uh actually i just talked to jerry williams about that on her podcast (laughs) it was uh (laughs) it was called operation utah powder and it started out in in jerry's field which was my initial field as a white collar crime agent it started out as an advanced fee loan scheme in utah run by a, a spaniard who was living in salt lake what is that and, uh, exactly an advanced fee loan scheme I'm... advanced fee loan scheme it's it's a con artist uh scheme and basically what they do is they target small businesses who don't have good enough credit to get a legitimate mm-hmm. loan from a bank okay and so what they do is they tell these folks you know hey i got my own group of private investors and um, we can make you a loan and you know they make the victim fill out all these applications and stuff and Basically, they say, okay, I'm going to pitch it to my investors, and then they tell them, oh, guess what? Your loan's approved, and we'll get you $6 million, but first you've got to pay pay me my fee of $60,000 first. Mm. It kind of runs like that, and then they, they pay this advance fee, and they never get their loan, and that's and that's kind of the way it goes. Wow. No. And so I had a guy like that in Salt Lake, and he had been ripping off people with this advance fee loan scheme mostly in Spain and Portugal, even though it was based in Salt Lake. 
And, you know, that kind of business in the long run is really not sustainable because you get a reputation of having never made an actual loan and all you do is have angry clients. So he, just as I was closing in on him and I did a search warrant on his house, I realized he had switched uh, businesses and he had become a money launderer for Colombian drug cartels. And I sort of stumbled into it. Wow. That way. The money laundering I find fascinating because how exactly does that work? I mean, it seems like it would be more and more difficult to do all the time. It, it is fascinating, and it's, it, it evolves as the money laundering organizations evolve and how as law enforcement catches up their, to their latest techniques, they change their techniques. So I can give you a good example. So, for instance, in this case, they were using what we call the black market peso exchange, where they have, uh, you know, the, the the drug cartels based in Colombia. They're exporting, you know, say cocaine to the United States, mm -hmm. and they have a whole organization that just does that, distributes the narcotics, and then that's a big smuggling operation, obviously. And then they raise all this cash in the United States, and the problem for the the head of the cartel in Colombia. For them to make a profit, they need Colombian pesos back in Colombia. So they have a problem with all this cash in the United States that actually is bulkier and heavier than the drugs they sent in. Mm. And because it's all in small denominations, in fives, tens, $20 bills. And so they have a whole separate organization that just launders that money back to Colombia. And the way they were doing it back in the late 90s and early 2000s, is they would um, have someone called a peso broker in Colombia who's a professional uh, businessman, and he had contacts with legitimate Colombian businessmen in Colombia and links to the cartel and links to a guy in the United States who could help them move money. So what he would do is link up these three parties and say, hey, uh, Mr. Uh, hardware store owner in Colombia, I, I understand you you owe $100,000 to Stanley Tools in the United States in U.S. dollars. And he'd say, hey, I can pay that bill for you. You just give me the equivalent of 80000 in Colombian pesos. Ah. And the, the hardware store owner's like, oh, I get a 20% discount? No problem. Here's 80000 in pesos. And then that peso broker would call up my guy in Salt Lake and say, okay, I want you to wire $100,000 from that cash you picked up in New York last week and wire to Stanley Tools of Miami to pay off this guy's account. Wow, that's clever. This way, this way the U.S. dollars never leaves the United States, and it looks totally legitimate. And it was a brilliant system. But as law enforcement caught on to this more and more, they would evolve, and they would do many different creative things. So years after that case, I was a a money laundering squad supervisor in New York, the same squad that had helped me on that case. Mm -hmm. And by then they were, they had adapted to different techniques. And let me give an example of that. So I don't know how well you know in New York City, but Jackson Heights, Queens is kind of the Colombian neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And they would have these guys either in Jackson Heights or, or in Washington Heights with the Dominicans who were also involved in the, in the distribution of narcotics. And they would get together a group of people and they'd make the transfer from the drug distribution organization to the money laundering organization with cash, 
and the guy would distribute it to say, say you gather 20 people and say, okay, today he gives everyone $5,000. He says, today I want you to all go out and buy iPods mm. and come back to me at the end of the day. And they'd come back and they scour the city, buy up all these iPods, bring them to the same guy, and he'd put them in a container and ship it down to Bogota, and then we'd sell those in an electronics market in, in downtown Bogota. And that would turn into pesos, and that's your drug money. That's how it moved. Wow. And uh, so, so they even actually, believe it or not, they were buying scrap metal and steel from the wreckage of the World Trade Center, putting it on a barge, sending it down to Colombia, and selling that scrap iron as a way to launder drug money. You know, I hear all that, and I can't help but wonder, why didn't you just get a real job? You have that much initiative, <laughs> and I mean, yeah. that's a lot of effort. It is a lot of effort, but, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, and it's still going on. You know, I think law enforcement did a pretty good job of taking out a lot of these organizations in Colombia. And unfortunately, the leadership of that whole business just kind of moved to Mexico, and now Colombia is more, more just a, like a production facility where they make the cocaine, and then, but the Mexicans are now in charge of the whole business. So it's... It's like a whack-a-mole, you know, you, you take care of the problem in one spot and it shifts and it moves and we have to adapt and, and, and adjust our way of combating the problem. Have you watched um, Narcos on Netflix by chance? I, ha I haven't. A lot of people told me I should watch it, so I, it's on my watch <laughs> list, but you know, that went I into... had a busy 21 years, so I, I missed a lot of TV. <laughs> oh, I understand that. But, uh, yeah. Now, I, I I do plan on watching it. I've read somewhere that money laundering is rampant in the art world. Is that accurate? Uh, I've heard that, too. Um, I didn't work a lot of art crime, but uh, I know people in the, in the money laundering, uh, law enforcement experts in money laundering, who tell me that, you know, real estate is rampant for uh, money laundering, as is some, some of the art world business. And if you look into Russian organized crime, you will find <laughs> links between the shady art dealers and and uh, and Russian organized crime figures. So there, there's definitely a link. Is there? A, would you think there might be a, a vulnerability on anything that has a perceived or intangible value? Like, like, and I brought up art, but it could be coins, it could be stamps, um, any kind yeah, of collectible absolutely. that you can go up and down on. Sure, absolutely. Just like I explained how it could be uh, iPods or Sony Playstations or scrap iron, it could also be artwork. It, it could be uh, it, it, your, your imagination is your limit on how money can be laundered. And, and that's why I love investigating those types of crimes, because the criminals were pretty sophisticated. And it was a challenge, you know, to figure out exactly what they were doing, how they were doing it. And then try to dismantle, which was the FBI's approach, dismantle the entire organization, not just arrest one guy doing that, because that person would just be replaced and you had no impact. So we would try to take out entire organizations, and that's a lot of work. I can imagine, especially when you're getting involved with uh, foreign entities. How yeah, and that's another, another thing I learned in my career at the Bureau is that almost every one of my investigations had some kind of international nexus to it. And crime is just international these days. It's just the way the world is. And 
to, in order for the FBI to be more effective at that, we began this FBI LEGAT program where we had representatives in our embassies overseas, and I think we're up to 70 embassies now or something like that. But, for instance, Paris, where I worked, we've had an agent there since 1945. Mm. And just to do coordination with the local law enforcement there um, to help us on investigations that we're doing in the United States and vice versa. So you're like, you're like the middleman. So if the French needed something from the FBI, they'd come to the Ligat. If the Ligat needed something, if someone in the F- an FBI field office in Salt Lake needed some, something from the French, they'd go to the, the Ligat in Paris, and we would know who to go to within the French law enforcement structure and get that. So it was, it, it's, it's been very effective for us to, to work like that. It seems like there'd be a lot of moving parts on it. It'd be very complex, especially culturally yeah. speaking. Yes. I mean, but on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, no. The, the, the brotherhood of police officers and law enforcement, it's almost the same around the world. And I've worked with cops literally in many different cultural settings in the Philippines and Saudi Arabia and France and Germany. And believe it or not, we all have the same, you know, we all want to, get the bad guys and do the right thing so we have that commonality already built in and just question of getting around all the other normal cultural barriers to get on the same page and work together and uh and that's why i really liked uh, many of my overseas assignments with the bureau do you have troubles with any um, countries that let's say don't have an extradition treaty or just flat out don't care for the united states at all having oh, sure. uh, <laughs> members of the organizations <laughs> yeah. in there? Yeah, I mean, that's each, we have, you know, what we call MLATs or mutual legal assistance treaties that are specific to each country. So, for instance, in France and Hungary, where I had a lot of experience, they were great, very cooperative. Um, we could do many, many things uh, in their territory and vice versa. Now, Russia, as you know, I worked Russian organized crime in my career as well. Um, I was the unit chief of the Eurasian organized crime program at our headquarters in Washington. Um, and as part of that program, I took uh, some of my uh, FBI agents who were working Russian organized crime cases because we weren't getting a lot of intelligence back through our Liga, through the normal channel, you know, our Liga in Moscow had a relationship with the Russian MVD, which is the equivalent of the FBI over there. Mm-hmm. And depending on the case, we weren't getting a whole lot of assistance. And that is because, as you probably realize, there are, um, depending which organized crime group you're targeting, it, there's, there's links to uh, politicians over there, and, and <laughs> you can only go so far. So, so I led a delegation. We went to Moscow. And we met their officers, sat down with them, had a conference, shared information, shared intelligence. And this was back in 2006. So it was slightly different. Uh, I, I would say there was a lot more cooperation then than there, than there is now. And so we did progress some of those investigations. Not all of them. Still some would get the runaround, but some of them, they would really would help us. And the next year, I invited them to come to New York and we had another meeting there, and we did the first ever uh, joint interrogation of a Russian organized crime figure. So 
So we arrested a guy in Brooklyn, brought him in, and uh, he's confronted by an FBI agent and a Russian MVD officer <laughs> on a Russian organized crime case. And that had never happened before. That was in 2006. And that was that was a sort of a breakthrough, like in, in our terms of our cooperation. And unfortunately, from that was kind of the high watermark of our <laughs> cooperation coordination. And since then, it's kind of gone downhill. But but for a while there, you know, it's possible. But like you said, each country is different, and how how extensively they're going to work with us. I've heard or read somewhere that there's speculation that Putin may, in fact, be the richest person on the planet. That he has so much money buried away, tied in with organized crime mm. and everything else, that we have no real clue how much mm. he actually has. Yeah, uh, I've read that too. I, I don't know how accurate it is, but uh, it wouldn't really surprise me. Now, if it if it were in fact true, there was. I, I wish I had done more research before I talked to you because my memory is terrible. But there was a law that was put in place that it is apparently driving Putin crazy. Um, that Magnitsky Act. That's it. Can you talk about that a yeah. little bit? A little bit. I mean, uh, the real expert on that is uh, David Browder. And uh, I don't know if you read his book. It's a fascinating book called Red Notice. And he was a, a capitalist who set up shop uh, in Moscow shortly after the fall of communism. And he started Hermitage Capital. And he was like a hedge fund guy setting up shop in Moscow. And he eventually started finding all these financial irregularities in certain companies he had been investing in and, uh, and sort of got jammed up. And, and one of his employees, Sergei Magnitsky, was actually arrested and then died under mysterious circumstances in a Russian jail. And uh, that was the beginning of the Magnitsky Act, he, he and John McCain and other politicians in the United States put together this law that allowed the Congress to impose sanctions uh, on specific individuals uh, in foreign countries and make it illegal for U.S. citizens to do business with them. And so David Browder was a, a big proponent of this law, and that's why he is a persona non grata in, in Russia right now, but uh, he, he kind of was the impetus behind uh, getting that law passed. Yeah, from what I understand, he has to, um, or he literally is under threat for his life. Yeah, yes, and, and I believe that. I take that threat seriously. Um, you know, when I was working in Russian organized crime, we were investigating the murder of another journalist, uh, named Paul Klednikov. I don't know if you know about him or his case, but he was he worked for Forbes, Malcolm Forbes, and Forbes magazine, and reported uh, in Moscow. But he was an American citizen, and he wrote a, a fantastic book about Russian organized crime called Godfather of the Kremlin. And Paul Klednikov ends up getting assassinated in in Moscow, and uh, is shot and. Uh, ends up uh, bleeding out under mysterious circumstances in a quote-unquote stuck elevator in a hospital. Wow. And uh, that that murder, you know, has never been solved to our satisfaction. You know, the Russians kind of fingered some 
some Chechen separatist guys, but none of that made sense because his book, Godfather of Kremlin, really goes after some of the first oligarchs and exposes their corruption. And uh, it's a great read, but unfortunately, I think that book cost him his life. And um, yeah, so. Uh, now, you probably then dealt with some of the transition because when the um, Iron Curtain fell, didn't the country kind of flip and just be taken over by organized crime? Uh, it, it it appears that way. I mean, they, they certainly got more and more entrenched and emboldened. And uh, if you look at, you know, what happened on to their their largest enterprises, it certainly seems that way. And uh, like Yukos and Gazprom and all that. I mean, it just, you know, we, we don't really have oligarchs in the United States, but uh, they certainly do have them over there. And they're just... Uh, they control uh, their companies in a in a unlike the United States, where we have reporting requirements for our public companies. Uh, and any company that's traded on the stock exchange has to, you know, report all their financial data on a quarterly basis. So that that just doesn't happen over there. So the, their their finances are very murky, which allows for all kinds of uh, abuse. Uh, by organized crime figures. And it was kind of like the Wild West of capitalism out there after the fall of the Iron Curtain, and there were murders and uh, all kinds of stuff, illegal stock transfers, and you name it. I mean, it was it was a little crazy uh, in Russia after the fall of the Iron Curtain. Yeah, it, it had to be. I mean, uh, completely flipped on its head. I know, I guess Browder, that's how he got started, was going over there and they didn't know what to do with these companies, so they gave them to the workers, supposedly, like in small stock certificates where you get a $20 chunk of every company, and the workers didn't know what to do with them, so they'd sell them off for food. Yeah, and then and then shortly after that came the, the what we were interested in was the capital flight phenomena, which is all these oligarchs, you know, they couldn't really do much with their rubles in Russia, so they suddenly wanted to get all their billions of dollars out, out of Russia and into Western banks and so they could buy their, you know, yachts and on the French Riviera and, all, and their mansions in the, the, the Gold Coast of Spain and all that sort of thing. So that was uh, an opportunity for us and uh, to try to prevent them from abusing our financial system in the United States. And we took that mission very seriously and worked, worked hard on that. Uh, to some extent successfully so you'll see a lot of that russian money uh did not end up coming here uh with the exception of the real estate market uh now did the mcnixie act um kind of stymie them for the money that did get out though they can't get to it uh, on certain individuals yes their their money would be frozen um but they'd have to be a named individual and because of the abuse of uh, registered companies and shell companies, it would often be difficult to really know who was behind the ownership, not only of the companies, but of the assets those companies bought, such as real estate and apartments and houses and condos and investments in, in land. And you couldn't really tell who's own, who, who owns it. And so many of us in law enforcement were hoping that Congress would change some of those laws regarding the registration of companies and you know because we're a capitalist country we want to make it easy to start a business 
but when it's easy to hide the true owners, it makes things difficult for us as investigators to figure out what's what's really going on behind the scenes. Yeah, ev- everything with Russia seems to be murky. Um, I, I, I'm in my 40s, and I kind of feel like we're, we're facing a similar situation as the 80s, just a different direction, like, like Putin's kind of going back in time. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I think they're, you know, I'm no expert in this, but there are certain countries where culturally they, they've had strong leaders for a long time. You know, in Russia there were the czars, and and maybe that's what they're more comfortable with, and maybe that's more acceptable to their population, which is unlike in our country. Yeah, I've... where we try to have where we try to have divided government, you know, an equal separation of powers. There's no separation of powers over there. I mean, it's pretty clear who's in charge. Yeah. yeah, and he is really popular over there, too, isn't he? Genuinely popular. Yes. Um, and, you know, I think his, from what I've seen, his popularity can change with the, with the price of oil because that's one of their uh, main sources of income. And, and as oil price declines, you know, his his popularity goes down because they can't do all their big internal, you know, uh, infrastructure and spending projects that they can do when the when oil is at a high. So I think it does wane a little bit, but it's it's hard to tell because I don't think there's very good or accurate polling over there. And, and there's a, a certain amount of fear where people don't want to say that they don't support Putin. So it's kind of, can you really trust some of that information i don't know right it seems like some of his biggest critics um die in very unusual and painful ways yeah uh i've noticed that as well (laughs) (laughs) if you're going to be a politician uh running opposed to putin or journalist criticizing him you're you're literally taking your life in your hands to, to do that kind of uh work and uh that's unfortunately the way it is, it seems, over there right now. Now, um, coming to our side, uh, dealing with the Russians, what is the um, situation with the organized crime here in the States? Well, uh, you know, I think it's a phenomenon that's been part of this country for a long, long time, and I'm not sure it'll ever be completely eradicated just based on human nature, but... The FBI, I think, did an amazing job uh, with the La Cosa Nostra in New York City, for example, with the five families. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where we made our bones working organized crime. Um, We have a lot of famous FBI cases uh, involving uh, those five families and and undercover work, including, you know, the cases our former director, Louis Free, worked on personally. And uh, and famous FBI agents like Joe Pistone, who worked undercover as Donnie Brasco, you know, and uh, they we we had tremendous success against the, the Italian organized crime families in New York City, but that doesn't mean they're they're down and out forever for good. We still have dedicated squads in New York working that issue, and then we have the relatively newer phenomena of Russian organized crime. In, in the New York area. And and as you know from your American history, you know that Italian organized crime didn't just stay in New York. It's in Los Angeles. It's in Las Vegas. It's in, you know, uh, 
Atlantic City, you know, it's, there's, um, and we're a melting pot. So it's, it's, it's no longer, you know, just uh, an Italian group. Now there's organized crime, which, you know, I think you can make a good argument that gangs are organized crime. Sure. You know, and certainly these, these money laundering groups that I investigated, these drug trafficking organizations, is also a form of organized crime where there was a, a big organization, a structure, people had different roles. And uh, so, so yeah, so it's, uh, I'm not sure we'll ever eradicate it, but uh, I think the Bureau has a pretty good track record. And, uh, and uh, the only thing I think we're lacking is, is more resources. <laughs> you know, the, the FBI is a relatively small organization. Um, for instance, you take the NYPD, 36,000 uniformed officers for one city. You know, the FBI is about 13,000 special agents, and we cover the entire United States. Hmm. So it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I, every time I think Congress is going to give us more agents, and we it, it doesn't happen. But uh, That's all the more reason, I guess, you really need to work with local law enforcement, just for the numbers. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why our joint terrorism task forces have been a success. But we have also worked in in task forces with local uh, law enforcement on something called the OCDEF program, Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Forces, which I also worked on in New York, um, the Strike Force, which was led by DEA, but it had FBI, NYPD, IRS, ICE, you know, everybody was there all working together. And that, that's kind of the, the model that we use. And say you're, you're on a bank robbery squad in an FBI field office, you're also going to be working with local law enforcement. So we, we've definitely learned to leverage uh, our small numbers by doing that. I kind of wonder sometimes, and I, I pushed um, Jerry Williams on this, though, are there too many agencies? I mean, I kind of feel like there's a lot of overlap and why not roll ATF and FBI as one agency or things like that? I, I, w- I would not disagree with that. You know, I think uh, there was an opportunity after 9-11 to restructure things, and they did create a new bureaucracy called Homeland Security, which I think we would have been better off, like you said, doing more mergers than creating new entities. And uh, so, for instance, after 9-11, when Director Mueller was... You know, it was his first week on the job, and he now he's got these horrible decisions he's got to make in terms of his resources, and of course he's going to shift a lot more agents into counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. And so logically, you know, he took them from a lot of our drug squads, and because you know he's he's famous inside the bureau for having said uh, there's another agency that works that, <laughs> <laughs> which meaning meaning the DEA, right? So which was no fun for a lot of agents working drug cases who were invested in those cases. Suddenly you're told, okay, you're reassigned to terrorism. So there was definitely some griping going on, but, uh, but uh, it was totally understandable because of the, the overlapping missions of federal law enforcement agencies. What worries me is like the DAS, like I think they should be rolled in too. personally. I mean, maybe I'm wrong on it, but, um, I yeah, I think the DEA and ATF should, and the FBI should all be one. It, it, it does make no sense because, you know, blue on blue encounters on the street and undercover roles and drug cases and stuff like that, that, that could lead to very bad situations. So it, it, 
it really doesn't make sense and people get territorial and you know it's uh in in some cities there there is no strike force where they're working together uh and there's bad blood and history and and the agencies don't work together and that's that's only a win for the criminals not for law enforcement now are these do you think these problems are coming from the top like you know if everybody gets combined then a lot of directors lose jobs could be uh you know i think some of these agencies have been around so long the fbi is over 100 years old i think it's maybe it's just political inertia and i think you know we had that momentum after 9/11 when they did look at a, look at the whole picture again and they went in a direction which i don't still don't understand with the creation of homeland security <laughs> but uh you know I think that opportunity, it was a missed opportunity, and it's still there, but I think it's going to take political will on behalf of members of Congress to, you know, make that happen. And that's going to, that's not a, a easy process. It's going to have to be hearings and commissions and input, but it can be done. I just don't see it being done. I don't see the political will right now. Now, you've been all over the world. Um, is there any country you think, hey, these guys are really doing it well. They're doing it right. Um, hmm. uh, the French had a very professional and effective uh, police structure. You know, it was it had overlapping, like like we do. You know, they had they had the police judiciaire, they had the gendarmerie, and then they had uh, the the equivalent of the FBI, the DCRI over there. And so there was there was once you figured out who was who and where their jurisdictions were, we worked great together. And they were very professional, very competent uh, agents over there. Um, other agencies I worked with, I worked for six months in Saudi Arabia. And I, I went there in 2004 when they finally uh, agreed to let FBI agents come work with them inside the kingdom. And this is because, you know, they I, I volunteered to go there. I wanted to go there because... You know, I knew 14 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi nationals, mm -hmm. and none, none of them were Iraqi, you know, but we invaded Iraq, you know. So I wanted to see for myself what's going on over there. And I think Saudi Arabia was in a bit of denial that they had a big al-Qaeda problem after 9-11. Um, but they could no longer deny it when al-Qaeda changed its tactics and started doing uh, operations and terrorist attacks inside Saudi Arabia starting in mid to late 2003. And that's finally when Saudi Arabia said, okay, come help us. And working with them, there again, some very professional people there. And I, I really enjoyed working with them, but it was, it was all out war. I mean, we were hunting Al Qaeda while they were hunting us. Mm. And, uh, but the thing about them, we worked with a, an organization called the Mabahis, the Saudi Mabahis which is kind of like the FBI and CIA combined in one uh, mm. intelligence agency. But they had counterterrorism responsibilities within the kingdom, so we worked with them. But on the one hand, we knew they were compromised and that they had al-Qaeda sympathizers within that structure. So we had to be very careful about who we worked with and we, uh, how much intelligence we shared, who we shared it with. You know, we'd meet in different safe houses around the city just for our coordination meetings and it was uh it was an intense time to be there 
um, and that they had a big problem with Saudi radicalized youth wanting to join uh, with their Sunni brothers in Iraq fighting the Americans, so they would just be going across the border into Iraq. And then they realized, well, we don't have to go that far to fight the Americans. Let's do it right here in Saudi Arabia. So they started blowing up compounds where U.S. citizens lived who who worked in Saudi Arabia. So that's when they knew we we had to work together. Wow. That's horrible. Did you... um did you do a lot of honeypots and things like that to help extract um, bad agents or or try to attract people in to trap them? In Saudi Arabia? Yeah. No. 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 That, we, we, we kind of vetted our people through our own methods, the people we were going to work closely with. And, uh, and as you know, working overseas... Uh, Translation can be a, a huge issue. So we we started out with a group of people that we knew who uh, were in the Saudi Mabad who had uh, gone to university in the United States. So we we knew they were fluent English speakers, and because they lived in our culture for at least four years, they understood us much better than the average Saudi. Mm. And uh, we had a, a very productive relationship with a lot of people like that. And you know, I worked with a colonel who had gone to UCLA. And uh, he's now a brigadier general, but we, we, you know, had no problems, you know, like I said, it was, it was sort of this brotherhood of universal police around the world. We were on the same page from day one. Okay. And uh, he wanted to get rid of this, the scourge of Al Qaeda in his own country, just like we did. So it was uh, no problems. But at the same time, we knew culturally they had, they had a problem with people who were sympathetic to al-Qaeda, who would compromise our missions and our intelligence. And uh, and people died as a result of that. And it's, you know. Did the fact that um, these people studied in America, did they help you a little bit with the, the cultural um, divide? Or were they know that, well, you guys in the States, you do this, but we don't do that here. You, you've got to act in this other way. Did they help with any of that? Um. You know, we were we were on their turf, so we were the ones who had to adapt to them. You know, and uh, one thing that impressed me with working with them is, you know, I was I was raised Catholic in, in New York City, and uh, the you know, there's in Saudi Arabia, obviously they're all, or well, the majority is Sunni Muslim, mm-hmm. and it's a, uh, you know, no, no matter what you think of Saudi Arabia, I I. In my experience, there was true um, a lot of true believers there, and I don't mean that in a bad negative sense. <laughs> very devout um, people. Very devout people. You know, the the going to prayer five times a day, even though it 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 it, uh, it wasn't really optional. I mean, everyone had to go to mosque five times a day, <laughs> and these these Saudis that I work closely with. You know, when you're doing operational counterterrorism stuff, you can't, you know, from the American point of view, you can't suddenly, okay, prayer time, let's stop what we're doing and pray for half an hour. That's not kind of, you know, and they were they were there with us with that. But as soon as they could, if they missed, say they missed the prayer time, mm-hmm. they would go and pray. And, you know, it was, it was impressive, I thought, the depth of, you know, and, and, and they agreed with, you know, 
our point of view, which is what Al-Qaeda was doing had nothing to do with real Islam. So uh, that was heartening for me to see that and experience that firsthand, um, besides other cultural things like I drank a lot of tea over there. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Not much alcohol. (laughs) Yeah, and, and the way, you know, there's a famous picture of King Abdullah holding president bush's hand back then walking and holding hand mm-hmm. that's that's a normal cultural thing over there so when i'd be in these meetings and briefing people and i'd be sitting next to a brigadier general they would hold my hand literally like during the entire meeting <laughs> for an american that's awkward for me it was awkward you know yeah <laughs> hold a, a guy's hand for a half hour or an hour straight you know it's it's not what we normally do but those of us the few fbi agents who were there we were committed to make it work and we did we adapted to their cultural norms to make it happen yeah that would be weird the, um i think it's called proxemics or proxemics um yeah proxemics and you've been mm-hmm. all over europe and everything and even there there's d- differences um in culture like restaurants i believe they just fill oh, up yeah. the tables whereas here if you take a room and there's two people they'll be on the opposite ends and then they kind of separate in the middle and keep the exact space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and you know, I've had the travel bug since I was a young a boy. And uh, I was fortunate enough, you know, I told you my dad was a cop in New York, but my mom was a secretary for Pan Am. So I was able ah. to tra- travel as a young guy. And uh, my grandparents were from Norway, and I got to spend a couple of summers in Norway with my grandfather when I was 10 and 12. And... I just had the travel bug from then on. I I was going to ask you about that because you had mentioned um, when you were interviewed by Jerry that it took a while before you could get into the FBI because uh, you did so much traveling. Yeah. Yeah. My background investigation took, I don't know exactly how long it took, but it took them four years to hire me from the day I applied. So (laughs) I think it took quite a while because I had been to so many countries and they have to, you know, check arrest records over there and, make sure, you know, check with their uh, liaison partners and see, you know, hey, you got anything on this guy? You know, he wants to join us. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that definitely slowed down my application for sure. Now, was that true? I mean, there was a hiring, hiring freeze in there too, so I can't blame it all on my background. But, uh, uh, yeah. Was that um, uh, traveling as a kid, but also when you were a compliance officer? Did you do a lot of travel then too? I didn't. I didn't do much travel as a compliance officer. That was all New York City based. But uh, as a kid, you know, I traveled. And then once I got to college, you know, I did the stereotypical semester abroad thing. I I actually went to Oxford in England, and that was fantastic. And then in graduate school, when I got my MBA, I did a semester in Thailand, and that was great, too. Wow. And actually, my my first significant overseas assignment with the FBI was in the Philippines. And uh, in 2002, and uh, that was a fantastic assignment for me as well, because, you know, um, in those days we were hunting uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the real architect, the planner of the operational aspects of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And we knew that he had lived and worked in the Philippines. I don't know how much you know about the Bajoinka plot, but he was heavily involved in that, you know, with his... Uh, with his relative Ramzi Youssef, who we arrested in uh, Pakistan, but Ramzi Youssef and Kali was involved in the the first bombing of the World Trade Center 
back mm. in the 90s. Yeah. And anyway, so Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was involved with him in this other plot called the Bajoinka plot, which thank God didn't happen, but they wanted to blow up 20 airliners, Western airliners at once over the Pacific oh. and assassinate the Pope, the Pope and President Clinton at the same time in Manila when they were visiting. <laughs> that would have been quite a plot. Wow. But uh, luckily that was foiled in the Philippines by the Filipino police when their bomb lab uh, caught on fire. And uh, so, so when I was there, we thought maybe uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, after 9-11, fled back to the Philippines where he had lived before. And so I was involved in some aspects of trying to track him down there, which was, you know, quite exciting. <laughs> I guess so. Um, and so, yeah, you were working against al-Qaeda quite a bit. Now, is it fair to say that al-Qaeda is kind of on the wane a bit and ISIS has picked up the uh, slack, I guess? To some extent, yes. Um, both Sunni organizations, both uh, attracting a bunch of new recruits, but ISIS is definitely on the wane right now as well. I mean, they're they're hurting. And, and al-Qaeda, at least the al-Qaeda that I worked against, which is called al-Qaeda uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, they are definitely still around. And they're, they're in Yemen taking advantage of the complete chaos that's going on there to keep up uh, their their own little bases there. And uh, so they're, they haven't gone away. Um, you know, I, I think, like a lot of other FBI agents, you, you can't kill an ideology or kill your way out of an ideology. And, um, and I know the U.S. government has brought a lot to bear on this fight, including our military, but I'm not sure that uh, it's something we can bomb our way out of. Yeah, isn't Yemen a proxy war between Saudi and Iran? Yes. Yes, because, uh, you know, the the Houthi rebels are allegedly supported and supplied by Iran, but uh, it's, uh, from what I've read, it's just a humanitarian disaster. Do you have any... Which, and it's... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, Yemen is uh, Osama bin Laden's ancestral homeland, so there's there's plenty of sympathy for Al Qaeda in Yemen. Yeah, I don't doubt it. Do you have any thoughts about the Crown Prince of Saudi? Um, I've never met him or worked with him. You know, he was kind of after my time in Saudi Arabia, so you know, I just uh, I I fully support the assessment that the agency did. Uh, on that incident with Khashoggi and, and they, I know what kind of expertise the CIA has in, in the kingdom firsthand. So I, I trust that assessment quite a bit. So personally, I wouldn't, I would not be, uh, working with that, um, government as long as he's in the position of the crown prince that he's in. I just, I would not be interested God, it, it seems like it's such a a mess. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you ever work with Mossad at all? Uh, not directly. Um, uh, I've through our legat in Tel Aviv, which I, I've, I've visited. I've, I've requested information from them. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get anything that was very helpful or useful. But uh, so, so no, I haven't really worked firsthand with them. Okay. Now, you're um, famous for having the opportunity to 
interview Carlos the Jackal. I'm curious, so in your career, and I mean, it's a long one, what case are you most proud of? um, I think this long-running case uh, that I mentioned there about the Colombian drug money laundering case, because I took it from, you know, one guy depositing drug money in Salt Lake and ended up extraditing the the heads of drug trafficking organizations out of Colombia based on that. And uh, it took years. <laughs> I didn't get a whole lot of support from even from my own organization to do that, but uh, I did it and uh, very proud of that. Um, another case I was proud of was one I, I worked on in, in Paris, and that was the case of a, a missing girl, which is not normally what the FBI does, but when a missing U.S. citizen when that happens overseas, uh, we, we do we can get involved. And this happened to be the daughter of a U.S. diplomat stationed in Germany, and his daughter was uh, attending school in France where she went missing. And uh, so I worked on that case. Um, and uh, I was, uh, I guess, proud of the results of that case, even though it was touch and go for a while. <laughs> um, we we had feared all kinds of things based on her communications about who she may have ended up with. And uh, it was a case that luckily we, within three months, we had her back safe and sound. So that was, uh, that was uh, n- not, not normally what happens when a, when a 16 year old goes missing. True. <laughs> Seems that way. Yeah. yeah. Now um, that actually leads me down another path. I believe You've taught um, interrogation techniques? Yes. Yes, I have. Now, I've been hearing more and more from different folks who are involved with it. um, uh, Chris Voss, I guess, uh, did hostage negotiation. Um, Chase Hughes is another person I've talked with over time. And they have kind of come out and said that some of our techniques like waterboarding are, are lazy and ineffective. Yeah, well, I would go a step further and say they're illegal and ineffective. True. You know, they they it's it's tantamount to torture, and it doesn't work. You know, that's that's the position, not just my position, but that's the FBI's position. Now, why do you think we were doing this? Was it a a, a factor of revenge? Do you think? Well, I, I think. Uh, well, you got to look at who who was. Who was driving that that whole program and, and that war? You know, and uh, to me, you know, I'm no expert in this matter, but the, the, it looks to me like the vice president was directly in charge of that whole operation, you know, at the time. And uh, and you know, unfortunately, he picked an agency to be in charge of that effort that really had no experience in interrogation. Um, and they resorted to methods that are not productive. You know, when you torture someone, they will say anything to stop the torture. And it doesn't mean you're getting to the truth. Right. And, uh, so, you know, I think, uh, that whole operation was a disaster from the start. And, you know, once some of these subjects, same subjects, after going through multiple waterboardings, were then when then suddenly the FBI was given access to them 
and we did it, you know, using our techniques, suddenly we're getting a lot of good intelligence. So, you know, I, I, I certainly have strong opinions in this area. And if you really want a, a good firsthand example of the differences, uh, I recommend a book to you called The Black Banners um, by an FBI agent named Ali Soufan, who was uh, uh, mentioned in the book and the TV show The Looming Tower. Um, but Ali Soufan uh, was an FBI agent uh, in New York assigned to the, the coal investigation a Navy ship that Al Qaeda blew up in Yemen, and so he he's got a, he's got a lot of great antidotes in that book that explain our methods versus you know another agency's methods and, and what what works and what doesn't. And uh, so I, I would recommend you read that if, you, if you're interested in that topic. Well, definitely, and I think that um, I'm trying to think of the right term, but um, like uh, Chase Hughes has gone about it and. He sort of, I think you even mentioned it before that it's sort of like Columbo. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's that's what that's sort of a, a rapport building technique. But uh, step one would really be doing your homework and your research and knowing as much as you can about who you're about to interrogate before you even start, and that goes for interviewing or interrogation. And the differences are interrogation is when someone is in custody, you know, and they're going to be asked questions. So they, they don't have the option of storming out. <laughs> so that's, that's really the difference. Uh, and, 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 and you've arrested them and you kind of know you have already have evidence against them and you're hoping to get a confession. That's kind of the difference between an interview and an, an interrogation. Hmm. So first step one is doing all that research and then you got to put together your plan, you know, maybe, uh, if it's an interview, maybe you want to do a ruse. Maybe you want to approach them and pretend you're not law enforcement and do something else and see if you can talk to them or introduce an undercover agent or, you know, or if you're doing an interrogation, you know, maybe you're going to do, uh, you know, in a high stakes scenario, you, you want to, you want to give them the pitch, which I've done many, many times, which is, you know, Hey, I got you good. Here's the evidence. You lay it out, you let them read the indictment and say, hey, either you're going straight to jail or you're going to work for me. <laughs> what do you want to do? And uh, and if you want to work for me, it starts by telling me everything you know about the criminal activities you were involved in. And then step two is, if I think you can help us, I'm going to let you out of here and you're going to work with me on the street. And I've been successful in doing that many times. And uh, And most people, when faced with that decision, once they're convinced that you, you've got them good, they're going to work with you. And so, unlike in the movies, in the real world, we do end up having these long-term sort of intimate relationships with criminals, which is not, you know, what you think about when you sign up for this kind of job, but that's how it ends up. Does that sometimes and, uh, go bad, like a Whitey Bulger? Sure, it can go bad if you if you start believing some of the some of the BS that your source is, is giving you, you, you can, you can go down that road, you know, um, you know, and, and there are other approaches. There's something we call the bump or the soft pitch where you just, you know, your subject's pattern so well, you're just going to bump into them on the street and sort of on the side, tell them who you are and say, Hey, if you're, if you're ready to work with us, 
let's talk, <laughs> that kind of thing. And there's all kinds of different ways to do it. And and then, but once you have their attention, and then to me, it's all it comes all down to rapport. And rapport starts with identifying some commonalities you have with that person. And you know, and that was a little hard to do with Carlos the Jackal because he's a Venezuelan in a French prison. <laughs> and like, what do I have in common with this guy? You know. But uh, it turns out we were both, you know, from the Americas in France, you know, and uh, we both knew about French culture. And uh, I had done enough research on him. I had a bunch of topics I was ready to build rapport with, you know, knowing how much time he'd spent in Syria. I knew he'd been following, you know, the Syrian civil war. And that was a way I planned on you know, building up that rapport because no one's going to open up to you and talk to you about the most horrible things they've ever done in their life unless they trust you and like you. Right. And he, and, uh, he saw himself and as, you don't get that through torture. <laughs> oh, right. He saw himself as kind yeah. of a, a sophisticate, didn't he? He or considered does. himself, you know, on the one hand to be a, like a professional soldier mm-hmm. is, uh, for his cause. Uh, which was the Palestinian cause, and uh, but a, a highly skilled uh, professional uh, soldier. And he, well, he actually in open court when the judge asked him, "Who is he? What, what's his occupation?" He said he would say professional revolutionary. Hmm. <laughs> so that's how he thought of himself. It's kind of like a like a Che Guevara kind of guy. Mm. Yeah, there's a prize. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. For a while, and this is what I find fascinating about him, is I feel like he was almost um, built up into a James Bond villain, um, culturally. Yeah, he was. He was twisted into that way by so many of the distorted depictions of him, you know, through Hollywood and writers and books and stuff. And uh, so, you know, he initially became associated with, with the Jackal by the British media. You know, they knew they knew his code name was Carlos, and when he did his first baby terrorist attack in London in the early 70s, the British police found out, found the apartment where he had been staying, and they found a, next to his bedside a copy of the book, The Day of the Jackal, which is about an assassin going after Charles de Gaulle, which got nothing to do with Carlos, but the media called him Carlos the Jackal. <laughs> and then, you know, Robert Ludlum wrote this book, The Born Identity, that starts out with some news reporting about the real Carlos the Jackal then goes way off into fiction land about Carlos the Jackal and and from then on it was all these you know crazy things about a hired assassin and all this stuff I mean but he he does have some elements of that in his own biography you know he did was sort of a hired terrorist for Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein so there but the the true story of him was I think never really been shown in the American media. Uh, but the French, there was a French German film that does tell his story as, as, and it's pretty accurate. It's just called Carlos. Mm. And, um, it's a five and a half hour film by a French director. And, uh, but it's so well done. And, uh, and uh, I was very imp- more impressed with the actor after I met the real Carlos, <laughs> but I, I watched that as part of my research. And, uh, yeah, the the actor Edgar Ramirez, who is is Venezuelan like Carlos, 
and in the movie speaks, you know, five different languages like Carlos. He he actually did a pretty good job. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Are you a polyglot yourself? Uh, well, I could, I I speak some French and a little Norwegian, and I used to speak a little Thai. But you know, with each new language I try to learn, I I, I lose the older one. Okay. So, like when I was learning, trying to learn French, I would first think of the Norwegian word, then. <laughs> Then the Thai word, and then I'd find the French word. So I think I've successfully erased all Norwegian and Thai from my brain at this point. Okay, so mostly French now. Um, is it uh, true that they get a little annoyed with uh, American pronunciation? Or No, what I found to be true is if, if you try to speak French in France, they appreciate that. They do, you know? okay. They'd be more annoyed if you if you spoke English to them as if assuming they would understand you, you know, then that would annoy them. And a lot of people in France, obviously, especially the younger generation, do speak English, but if you just, you know, were the ugly American tourist and expect them, everyone you meet there to know English, that would be annoying to them. Okay. But if you're trying to speak French, even if your accent is terrible, I think they would, they would appreciate that. At least that's, that's what I found. Okay, well, that, that's good to hear. Because, I, I mean, yeah. there's a rumor about Paris being a little snobbish and things like that. Well, I think that part of that comes from uh, what kind of French people Americans interact with on a typical tourist stop in Paris. Who are they going to meet with? Mostly they're going to talk, talk to either people at the reception desk when they check in the hotel and waiters. Mm, and this sense. reputation, I think, comes from the waiters because waiters in France don't work for tips. So it's not like in America. They're going to be super nice to you and ask, how are you, and smiling. Waiters like that, their tips included in the bill. So they're not going to be smiling at you. It's a cultural thing, you know, because the tip's are already there. So that's, that's normal behavior in France. But to an American, they're like, oh, my God, that waiter's so rude. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you but, know uh, that makes sense. And also... Yeah. Americans can be very rude right back to them, and I'm sure the waiter's seen yeah. every bad American out there and it feels like a a victim or brutalized yeah. employee. Yeah, yeah. So, good point. Yeah. I never thought of that, that, we, that yeah. when traveling we don't really talk beyond certain circles. Yeah. Well, so... You know, and if you hire a tour guide, you'll you'll meet a very friendly, nice French person, and you'll come away with that impression, but... If you if you're just gonna sort of a do-it-yourself tourist and you're just gonna spend your time with waiters and waitresses, you, you're gonna come up to some cultural differences which lead to these stereotypes that you know all French people are rude. <laughs> well, I guess every everything winds up being a stereotype. So to wrap yeah. things up, um, what's next for Eugene Casey? Well, I'm. Uh, I'm still doing some technical advice on this show. I've got a, another upcoming trip. I'm actually going back to the Middle East to do some more training uh, on the interrogation front. But I've, I've signed an NDA, so I can't tell you which country or which service I'm going to sure. be working with. But uh, I'm staying in that game, at least part-time, keeping those skills fresh. And I'm writing a book. So I'm writing a, a book, sort of my true stories of what I did in the FBI. And uh, hopefully, uh, I'll get a get a publisher, and uh, we'll see how it does. Excellent. When do you anticipate that being complete? 
I'm about one third of the way through, and uh, so I give myself you know another nine months, and I hope to have it done. Now, if people want to find out more, um, do you have a website or can they? I don't yet. I'm uh, I've got a, a public profile on LinkedIn and Facebook. I will definitely link those up. All right. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your experiences. You're, you're very welcome. Hi, I'm Tyson Franklin, the host of It's No Secret with Dr. T, which is a small business and marketing podcast. Each week, I interview business leaders who openly share the secrets to the massive success. It's No Secret with Dr. T will educate, entertain, and inspire you. Check it out. You'll find it wherever you listen to podcasts, or you can go to my website, TysonFranklin.com. I did not grow up with very much money. Money's energy. Money is something that, that really scares me. You had about 60 grand in debt. Money isn't the answer. Somebody should just give me a lot of money. My dream was to be the WWE wrestler, but you realize that your dreams change over the years. Money is a tool. It's a key to a gate. And at the other side of the gate is the things that you really want to do with your life. It's the things that matter most to you. It's pursuing those values that make you ultimately happy. Listen to Inspired Money at inspiredmoney.fm.